Good morning. Uh, our catechism this morning comes from the Baptist Catechism. I'll read the question and we'll all answer together. So, question 39, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and are more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Question 40. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurances of God's love, peace of conscience, fellowship with Christ, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, the privilege of prayer, and the perseverance therein to the end. Now if you'll please stand for the reading of the scriptures. Matthew five thirteen through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, good morning again. If you were here with us two weeks ago, you know that we have started our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is, without a doubt, the most famous human discourse in history. No discourse has been studied more than than this sermon that we're walking our way through. There have been volumes and volumes of books written on the volumes and volumes of books written on the Sermon on the Mount. It is more famous and more studied than Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, than Winston Churchill's Never Give Up speech, and even more so than Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. This is the most famous sermon that has ever been delivered, and our hope is between now and Easter to really dive in to this sermon. So two weeks ago, we looked at the Beatitudes where Jesus finished by talking about how in this life we will be persecuted. He talked about the blessings of persecution, but, you know, he kind of leaves us with this feeling of, of how then do we relate to this world? If we're a Christian and in this world, we will be persecuted. And so historically, there have been three ways that that Christians have decided they are going to relate to this world. One option is to flee this world, right? So we could go to, we build monasteries and, and compounds and protect ourselves from the influence of this world, from the persecution of this world. That's one option. A second option would be to compromise with this world. Because the more we look like this world, the less we're gonna be persecuted, right? Those have been two options, that Christians have embraced along the way. But here in our passage, Jesus is giving us a third option. He's saying we shouldn't flee the world, we shouldn't compromise with this world, but we should engage this world. We should influence this world. And that's what this passage is about. 
And, and Christians have struggled. I mean, really struggled for 2,000 years to figure out how is it exactly that we're to influence our society? I mean, Christians struggled to agree, to agree on our role in the abolition of slavery. Christians have struggled in our ability to agree in even things that we just take for granted now, like the American Revolution. You know, Christians have struggled to agree. Is it our role to provide hospitals and schools and orphanages? Because those things were all created and led largely by Christians. Christians have disagreed on, you know, who our neighbor is and how is it that we're to love them. We've disagreed even on if it's our role to proselytize people. How is it that we are to influence this world that we're living in? Do we get involved in issues of homelessness? Do we get involved in politics? Do we get involved in issues of race and discrimination? How is it that we as Christians are called to influence this world? That's what this passage is about. So I want to look at this passage from three angles as it pertains to Christian influence. I want to look at the need for Christian influence. I don't just want to assume that everybody agrees there's a need for it. I want to look at the nature of Christian influence, how it is that we influence our our society, and then lastly, how we can grow in our Christian influence. So that's where we're going. We're going to start with the need for Christian influence. You know, there are those out there who would say this world would be a better place if Christians were not in it, (laughs) or or at the very least, if Christianity was not in it. And and while certainly (laughs) we have some stains in our church history that I wish we could go back and change, but even so, Jesus in this passage seems to be clearly saying that this world needs Christian influence. And he says in this passage that this world needs Christian influence because this world is dark and because this world is in decay. So there's this interesting cultural shift happening right now that resembles something that we saw happening in the 1800s and early 1900s. In the 1800s and early 1900s, you saw this growing air of optimism in the Western world. This, this idea that if we could study hard enough, work hard enough, if we could develop enough technology and enough money, then we can achieve the perfect utopian society. I mean, people were writing about that. People were preaching about this. And then something happened in the 20th century that caused that optimism to totally shift to skepticism and cynicism. Do you know what that thing was? 100 million people died from two world wars and the rise of communism. So we saw all our thought and work and technologies send us the exact opposite direction. And I think because we've been safe enough and comfortable enough for long enough we're seeing this, this air of optimism come back, this belief, again, that if we work hard enough and we invest well and we develop the right technologies, we can achieve a utopian society. So what is it that, that people who would buy into this, what is it that they misunderstand about the nature of humanity that would cause us to embrace that kind of optimism? We don't understand that this entire world is in decay. That's what we don't understand. Everything that we, can, that we can look at and study, we can see scientifically that it is in decay. I mean, we can start with the little things like my backyard. If I don't manage my backyard for a few weeks, all of a sudden it looks like nobody lives there. My neighbors are talking about me. 
All right, it, it, I, every now and then, Angela and I have to get up the strength to venture into the back of our minivan. <laughs> this is, takes a lot of courage to do that. We need to, we need to clean out whatever's back there because we know if we don't, it will decay and there will be new species of Cheeto-fueled fungi growing back there. <laughs> My minivan is in a constant state of decay. Angela and I lived in Italy, as many of you know, for five years, and one of the great wonders of the world is in Italy, well, there are actually multiples, but the one that I'm talking about is the Colosseum. So the Colosseum, it took eight years to build, which is phenomenal when you consider what it is. It's 15 stories tall. It has three stories of arches and these 240, these massive arches, all of them inside them had a mass, a colossal statue. This, uh, this stadium could hold 50,000 people. Uh, they had, you know, all the labyrinth underneath it where, you know, lions and tigers and cheetahs could pop out and, and engage in battle with these gladiators. You could actually flood the Colosseum and have maritime battles inside it. And so when Rome was sacked and when Rome fell, what happened to the Colosseum? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, nothing. You could, there's nothing you could do with it. You can't tear it down. You can't... You can't burn it. It was completely covered in perfectly white marble. Every square inch was perfectly white. But once Rome fell, nobody was there to maintain the Colosseum. And plants began to grow inside the Colosseum. And the thing that no humans could physically tear down began to be demolished by plants growing up inside of it. And what we see today is impressive, but it pales in comparison to what was there 2,000 years ago, because even our greatest achievements are exposed to the decay of this world. We know that one day our sun is going to burn out, and, and life will no longer be able to be sustained in our solar system. We know that our bodies are in continual decay. We have to work very hard to, to preserve them, because when we stop, things go the opposite direction. That's starting to happen faster and faster every year I get older. And we know that one day our bodies are literally going to fall apart, molecule by molecule, because everything in this world trends towards decay. And I know some of you are thinking, well, this sermon is off to a very encouraging start. (laughs) But I want to be clear that everything we can observe in the universe tends toward decay, so why would our humanity be any different? And it wasn't that this world always was this way. I mean, there was a day when this world existed as it was created to exist. We can see in the beginning of Genesis where there wasn't decay. But when man rebelled against God, that's when the, de- the decay came into our universe. It came into our planet. It came into our bodies, into our minds, into our relationships and our soul. And that day when this world fell is when the decay began to take hold of our universe. But Jesus is saying in this passage that something has broken into this universe. Something that wasn't exposed to the same decay, that isn't marred by that decay. Something has broken into this universe and that something can work to slow down and even reverse the decay that we're experiencing in our world. And Jesus is saying that if you are a Christian, that thing is you. That's what this passage is saying. Passage is saying, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. 
You are the salt that stops the decay. You are the light that illuminates. So what does that mean? All right, to understand what it means, we're going to look a little, bit, a little bit at the nature of Christian influence. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I could imagine that what I just said or what I am saying sounds very arrogant, all right? So you could be hearing, listen, this world would be lost if it weren't for us Christians, okay? And if that's you, I want hopefully to nuance this a little bit because I, I do think that's what Jesus is saying, but I want to nuance it in a way that isn't, doesn't sound as arrogant, because the, there is a, a saving, preserving value of Christians in this world, but it's not because of us. It's because of what's inside of us. It's because of what we're connected to. And so I, I want to explain it like this. We, because we're talking about influence, we gain influence based on what we're connected to, right? I mean, we, we, we draw influence from things like a PhD, if you have a PhD, if you're connected to a PhD, you have more influence. If you're connected to a lot of money, you have more influence. If you are connected to a very famous person, say the President of the United States, that certainly gives you a lot of influence. But that kind of influence, it isn't eternal and it doesn't last because those things that we're connected to, that we're gaining influence from, they're plagued by the same problem we are. They're all in decay themselves. So the nature of Christian influence is that we're connected to something that isn't decaying. But all of us, even so Christians and non-Christians alike, we continue to run to those other things to gain influence, because that at the end of the day is what influence is, being connected to something greater than themselves. But we do that because we want to feel better about our own decay. We do that because we want to feel better about our own shortcomings. So when we run to these things, what are we really saying? Are you my savior? Money? Boyfriend, are you my savior? Job that I've always wanted, are you gonna save me? And over and over again, the answer is going to be no. Because there is only one thing that isn't marred by the sin of this world, and that's Jesus. Jesus who perfectly lived. Jesus, who had no sin, who came to this earth, who gave up his rights and his privileges so that we could be saved. Jesus, who will never tire of you. Jesus, who will never let you down. Jesus, who will never stop loving us. That's the only person we can be connected to who isn't marred by this decay. And we know that he will never leave us because he died for us. And whether people see it or not, it is for God's glory and their good that we as Christians, because of who we're connected to, that we influence our society, that we engage our society. And I want you to notice here that, that Jesus doesn't say, become salt or become light. <laughs> he doesn't say, work really hard, go to church a lot, and then maybe one day you'll be salt and you'll be light. He says, by virtue of being my disciple, you are salt and you are light. And the command is actually stay that way, as we'll see in a minute. But what in the world does it mean <laughs> to be salt and to be light? So I want to look at these two separately. First, salt. We can think of salt kind of as the defense, all right? And light kind of as the offense. Salt and light. Let's salt first. It's really interesting. Uh, I did not know 
until I began to read about this passage in different commentaries, how many different uses of salt there are out there. <laughs> and, and this is a really important thing to nail down because depending on which use of salt Jesus was leaning on, that changes how we apply this verse completely, doesn't it? So, I mean, some people say, well, ta- salt is tasty, so we need to be tasty to the world. Uh, or, or salt makes you thirsty, and we need to make the world thirsty for Jesus. Or uh, salt can melt ice off of roads. I'm not exactly sure how we apply that in Florida. Maybe, you know, salt can melt a frozen exterior. I don't know. And then somewhat uncomfortably, uh, one commentator said salt's white and white's pure. So we need to be pure. So there are all these different ideas of what use of salt Jesus is drawing on. And while I don't, I don't think that probably any of those applications, if you grew up hearing them, would have set you down the wrong path. I think they can all be supported in in other parts of the Bible. But I don't think that any of those uses of salt would have been the use that Jesus was intending and the use that that all his people would have heard. Salt in Jesus's day was an incredibly valuable commodity. It was, some people were paid in salt. This is where you um, you get phrases like, he's worth his weight in salt, because that was a lot of money. So salt was valuable but it was valuable because of its ability to preserve meat. That's why it was valuable. Because when you cut up meat, immediately you, know, you get these microbes that start working in the meat and it, and it begins because it's in decay to decay faster. And so what salt does, you, if you're able to pack meat very quickly and, and all over this meat, it dehydrates it and it preserves the meat. It protects it from the decay that it would otherwise experience. And that's what Jesus is saying to us, that you are like this, Christians. You are like little pieces of salt. Your job is to act as a preservative in this world that's decaying around you. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that can sound a little bit anticlimactic. You know, you're saved by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And now you are? A little piece of salt. <laughs> Why didn't God make us the rubies and diamonds of the world or the kings and queens? I mean, maybe princes and princesses. Salt is common. Salt is small. But because of its properties, salt is very powerful. And again, we're thinking defensively here, but, but if you're a Christian, Jesus' hope as you are salt is that there'd be less gossip when you're around in your workplace. There's going to be, in your student organization, a higher view of sexuality because you're there. In your gym, there's going to be a spirit of humility that, that wouldn't be there if, if you weren't there. In your home, there's going to be an air of love that, that would be absent if you were not there. There is a preserving quality to Christians interacting in the societies in which we live. The more Christians that exist in a society, the higher value we have for human life, the more that the poor are taken care of, the more the unborn are protected, and the more the disenfranchised are are lifted up. And here's where we do experience some pushback, especially in the secular world. And people say, well, (laughs) I hear what you're saying, Jim, that, that Christians are good for this world, but you look at all these atrocities that have happened in the name of Christianity, I don't think you can make that argument. To which I would say, I don't think the people who who directed those atrocities were largely Christian. I think they were leaning on the influence of Christianity to 
to do what ultimately they wanted to do. But let's say, for argument's sake, that they were Christians. Even so, if you look at the good that has been done in the name of Christianity and through Christians in the history of the world, it so overwhelms the effect of these atrocities that that these begin to pale in comparison to the good that Christians have brought to this world. And any good historian would point all these things out. They would they would point out that really it's the societies that are void of Christians that cause the most harm. You know, you think of Mao's China and Hitler's Germany. You think of Stalin's Russia. You think of the Kim family's North Korea, Hussein's Iraq. I mean, those, those are the societies void of Christian influence that cause the most harm. And then you look at societies who are filled with Christians. And you see that it breeds a higher view of humanity, a higher level of human rights. We know that the first person to publicly or recordedly speak out against slavery in the fourth century was a Christian, Gregory of Nyssa. We know that the person who brought slavery to an end in England was a Christian, William Wilberforce. I mean, you you look at MLK since it is, let's see, the last week would have marked his 90th birthday. Last year marked 50 years since he had been assassinated. And think what you will about MLK, there is no one that disagrees with the fact that his message was uniquely a Christian one. Do you realize that the entire concept of human rights is a Christian one? The entire concept of human dignity is a Christian one. Nowhere in the history of the world, outside of the influence of the Bible, do you hear any talk of human rights and human dignity? That's where it comes from. Do you know that we live in what's called a grace-based society, all right? You have grace-based societies, you have shame-based societies, you have power-driven societies. And so our friends in the East would know more about shame-based societies and power-based societies, but we live in a very different kind of society that affects everything from the way that we work to the way that our children's schools operate because we live in a grace-based society. And everyone would acknowledge that we live in a grace-based society because Christianity went West, So you can't say that Christianity hasn't significantly influenced this world for the better. Hospitals exist because of Christians. Orphanages exist because of Christians. And schools exist because of Christians. Christianity has significantly preserved a world that is in decay. And Jesus' command here is that we stay that way. Look at verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. All right, I'm curious. Are there any, anybody in the room with a chemistry background? Anybody? Okay, so I could say anything about salt. Oh, no, I can't. You have a chemistry background. All right. So Andy understands that salt technically can't lose its saltiness. That, that's, that's not possible. And so people said, well, Jesus just didn't know science. And so he's just mistaken about how salt works. I don't think that's what's going on. Because the, the way that salt was, was recovered back in that day, they would go to marshes and they would pull the salt, however they did that, out of the marsh. And after they pulled the salt out, they would need to test the salt to see 
what kind of preserving qualities it had. And if a lot of the impurities that existed in the marsh, if, if they were accompanying the salt, it would not have strong preserving qualities, right? It would actually do the opposite. It would cause it to decay at an even faster rate than if nothing had been put on it. But if it was pure salt, that would do the job. And the way you could tell the preserving qualities of the salt was to simply taste it. <laughs> it's not that complicated. If it tastes like salt, it can preserve. If it doesn't, it's got a bunch of other stuff mixed in with it. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. We need to make sure, we're never gonna, our qualities are never gonna change, but we need to make sure that we stay salty. So what does it look like for a Christian to lose her saltiness? I think compromise, <laughs> compromising with this world, compromising with the values of this world, living lives that don't look very different than the marsh that we came from. And, and I wanna be clear at this point because I could be misunderstood to say Christians are gonna perfect this world. You know, that, that's not what I'm saying. Only Jesus is gonna, per, gonna perfect this world when he, when he comes back. And I also want to be clear that we as Christians, we're not gonna be able to take up and to accomplish every kingdom issue that's out there. That's not possible. But because we serve a different king, because we're a part of a different kingdom, we have a different call, a different way that we are to engage our society. We are not to flee, we are not to compromise, we are to engage. And when we engage, we're gonna have influence. So that's salt. That's the defense. Secondly, we have light. Light's the offense. Light doesn't preserve, it illuminates. So most every scholar agrees that, that Jesus is, is, he uses visual aids around him when he teaches. So we know that Jesus is on a hill. We know that Jesus is surrounded by hills. And we know on, that on most of those hills, you have other towns because in that day, that's where you put a city on a hill. So it could be safe. And probably as Jesus is, is teaching, the sun's going down and what's happening to all those cities. As the sky gets darker, the cities get lighter. And that's what Jesus is pointing to, these lights that are, that are illuminating on all these hills around them as, as he's preaching. And, and this, yeah, this is something that, we, that can get a little bit lost on us. You know, we live in an urban sprawl. But if you were to drive around in a rural context, say, Mississippi, you know, towns there are more like islands really than, than anything else. So you drive from town to town in the dark. And when you come up to another town, the first thing you see, it isn't a sign. It isn't a gas station. It's the light of the city. And Jesus is saying that that's you. You're the light on the hill. And while our, I appreciate Ronald Reagan, his exegesis left something to be desired. The United States is not that light on the hill, the churches. We are that light on the hill, according to Jesus. And we're necessary because people are lost in darkness. All of us were lost in darkness. That's why we have songs like Amazing Grace. It says, I once was blind and now I can see. And the darkness that consumed us, it isn't like the darkness of walking down Maitland Avenue at night. <laughs> I'm talking about darkness that is so dark it's disorienting, it's dizzying. It's like the darkness of being, being trapped in a cave 200 feet under the ground. Darkness that you have no hope of escaping unless someone provides a light. And Jesus is saying, you are that light. You illuminate the way. So how do we do that? <laughs> How do we illuminate the way as, as lights? Verses 15 and 16. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So we as Christians are called to let our light shine. It's an easy thing to say, but it's actually a hard thing to do because many of us find ourselves in environments where we don't want our light to shine. And it'd be easier if we don't shine because when we shine, we stand out. And it's, un- it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to be the, the only Christian in the locker room. It's uncomfortable to be the only Christian on the golf course. It's uncomfortable to be the only Christian in your classroom. It's uncomfortable to be the only Christian on the little league sideline. And it would be easy to think, gosh, I'd kind of like to put a, a basket over my light right now. And Jesus is encouraging us here to not do that. Don't hide your light. To exercise the influence that Jesus wants his people to exercise in a society can't happen if we take the easy path. And everybody won't respond positively to our influence. Everybody won't want to see the light, but it is for God's glory and everyone's good that we shine. You know, I... (laughs) I was thinking about this week as I was getting my, my kids up in the morning. You know, I, I turn on all their lights and they respond in, in very different ways. You know, I, I turn on the light to the room in my four-year-old's room and it's like I've saved him from the terror of slumber. You know, thank you, daddy. Thank you. I get to get out of my bed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I go two doors down to my 11-year-old's room, turn on the light, and you would think I'm trying to kill him. He'll do whatever he can to get out of that light, whatever he can to get under the covers, to shield himself because he wants to repel from that light. Then in the same way, we're going to shine and people are going to respond in different ways. We don't have control over that. Some people will be repelled, but some people are going to be drawn like a moth to a flame or like a ship to a lighthouse. Our call isn't to decide how people respond. Our call is simply to shine. So how is it that we shine brightly? This is the last point. How to grow in your influence. And I want to stay with this light metaphor that Jesus is using on this point. And I want to, I want to suggest three ways that we can shine more brightly. And the first one is simple. <laughs> Move into darker places. You know, if, all, if we're only around Christians all the time, our light isn't it isn't going to really stand out, right? If everyone's shining and we're shining alongside them, we'll shine, but we won't have the influence I think that Jesus is wanting us to have. What does it look like to move into darker places? You know, it, if I had a match right now and I lit this match, you could probably see it, but it wouldn't stand out because this room is so light. But if we're all in a very dark room and I light that same match, not only would that light up the room, it could be blinding to look at because the room is so dark. And I know some of you, you live in very dark places. And I hope this passage is an encouragement to you. That you are making a difference. That you are shining just by being there. And some of you might be thinking, listen, I'm I'm a baby Christian. I've got a little baby light. I I I don't know how to shine like so many of these other people can. And if that's you, again, it only takes a small little light to light up a dark place. This was a, this is probably the most challenging part of it for me and and for my wife Angela because I'm a pastor I'm around people all the time usually who are churchgoers or at least professing Christians and so we for us our challenge is how do we how do we find our way into darker places so we're still trying to figure that out in Orlando 
But in Oxford, we decided we were going to join a specific gym that had classes so that we could be around people in a way that we built relationships with them, people who weren't going to church, people who would say they're not Christians. And it wasn't like, you know, we're having group prayers before the workout and I've got a Bible study that is going to motivate us on every workout. We were just there. We were there. We lived the way we knew to live. And by God's grace, he opened some really neat opportunities and some really dark circles. So we want to move into darker spaces so that our light will shine brighter. And for some of you, that's going to be a challenge, like me. (laughs) But for others of you, you live in the dark spaces. You know, you're the Lone Ranger Christian. Christian. (laughs) And so my challenge for you, the second thing, if we want our light to shine brighter, is to connect to other lights. You know, you, you need to be connected to other lights during the course of your week if you want to shine brighter. And so this this passage, if you read the ESV or the NIV, which I'm assuming that would cover most of this room, it it says what? You are the light of the world. But if you read the DSV, the Deep South version, what does it say? Y'all, y'all are the light of the world. And and that's that's what Jesus is saying. Y'all are the light of the world. Collectively, these, these cities, they're only lighting up because there are lots of lights together in that place. So what does it look like for you to be more connected to other lights? We live in the most individualistic society that has ever existed and that affects every bit of our Christianity. And so we have to fight more than anyone in the history of the world to be connected to the other lights. Certainly it means making Sunday a priority, but it's a lot more than that. Maybe it means joining a community group. Maybe it it means meeting up with Christians on a regular basis to study the Bible, to pray together. Or maybe just to talk about what you've been learning and and how you've been growing. We have to be connected to other lights. Maybe it's church membership. (laughs) The Discover OGC class starts next week. I'll make a shameless plug for that. I'd love you to join me. If if you're not a member of a local church and you think this this could be a good home for you, join me next week at 9.30 and we'll talk about what that would look like. But all of us have to be connected to other lights if our light is going to shine consistently and brightly for the rest of our lives. And then thirdly, and I would say most importantly, we need to reflect the true light. If we're gonna shine brightly, we need to reflect the true light. And you may have noticed in this passage, Jesus isn't comparing us to the flame. We are not the flame in this passage. What are we? We're the lamp. Okay, that can be lost in our age of electricity. In Jesus' day, you have a lamp and inside, that's us, inside that lamp is a candle and some oil and a wick and a flame. We as Christians, we don't produce the flame, we contain the flame. You know, we we shine like the moon shines, not like The sun shines, you know, the sun produces its light, the moon simply reflects it. That's the kind of shining that we as Christians are are called to do. We, We contain the flame, we contain the light. And I mean, that's why Jesus says in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what is it that causes the moon to not shine? The world gets in the way. And in the same way, what will cause us to not shine brightly? The world and everything that goes with it will get in the way. So our call 
is to nourish our relationship with Jesus Christ so that we can reflect his light more significantly, more effectively, and more fruitfully in our lives. So we have to ask the question, is his light shining in us? You know, what would, for me, the really encourage, the, the convicting way to ask this question is, how would those closest to you answer that question? Would they say that the light of Jesus Christ is shining brightly in your life? And if not, why? I mean, maybe it's that that light was never lit. Maybe it's today that you respond for the first time to Jesus's call into his kingdom. Or maybe it's been lit for decades, but stress and anxiety and busyness have just taken over like weeds in a garden. And the light has gotten dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Or maybe you just got into a place where you have put a basket over it. Is our light shining? Can you see now why Jesus would think that it's important that Christians have influence in a society? It's not because we're so great. It's because we have something so great inside of us. When we believe the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, something that is immune, someone who is immune from the decay of this world. And I could imagine someone sitting here and say, yes, I understand everything you said, Jim, but why would Jesus care? (laughs) You know, why does he care that we're salt and light? And the answer comes just a little bit later in his Sermon on the Mount when Jesus shows us how we're supposed to pray for this world. We're supposed to pray Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is bringing his kingdom to this earth and he is redeeming us and putting us to use, making us real workers and vessels that are a real part of bringing that kingdom to this earth. So I wanna finish a little differently than I normally finish. I want to encourage all of us to search our hearts and to ask ourselves, are we salt and light? You know, and I know no one's perfect. So the, you know, all of us have places we could grow. But what if we just took 30 seconds and had a time where we could silently reflect and pray and ask God, is there some tangible way that through, through this text, his spirit might be nudging us, that there are ways that we could be more salty, that our light could shine more brightly. So I just want to finish by doing that. Let's take some time, close our eyes, and ask God to do a work that only he can do. God, we thank you that your kingdom is not one that we have to, that we have to work to gain entrance to, but it's a kingdom that you give us entrance to, and then we have the joy of working alongside you. And so we pray this morning that, that we would be salt and light. And we, we, we know from demographic studies that this town is, this town, the city, this metropolis is becoming darker. And we have to believe by Jesus' words that that makes us even more valuable here. That we shine more brightly and, and we beg you that we would be people that would shine and that that flame, that it, that it would grow. It would grow not just in, in our lives, but through us, that other flames would catch. 
And we ask that you would make clear to us where are the places we can move into society and be salt and issues like homelessness and injustice and the unborn. And there's so many issues that we could identify, but where might you be calling us to invest? God, that's, that's between you and us. And so I pray that you would give us clarity this morning by the power of your spirit. And because we ask this, not in our own righteousness, not in our good deeds, but we ask this in the power of Jesus's righteousness and Jesus's deeds in his name. Amen.